Well, uh, good evening to you all. My name is Shane Mulhall, and as you know, the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Parenting, and it's to do with parenting in the north to ten years. The first question we have to face this evening is, why parents? What is the advantage of them to either the child or to society? We do not have them in the full sense for dogs or cats or budgie regards. So why do we have them for humans? And there are many, many answers to this. I'm just going to take a few uh, examples. The first thing is the relative development of the human being compared to the animal. The animal's instinctive intelligence is dominant so that they become self-reliant within a number of weeks or a number of months. The human being takes about 16 years to become an adult and some never get there, even at age 60. So the intellectual world of man takes a long, long time to develop and the emotional world takes a long time to stabilize or mature. And for that reason, man needs parenting in the full sense. The second thing is the human capacity. If you consider the worst dog in the world and the best dog in the whole world, the range is not very great. If you consider the worst human being in the world, and we take a historical example, somebody like Hitler, and you take the best human being in the world, and we take somebody like, say, St. Francis of Assisi, the range is colossal. The worst dog in the world could probably bite about 40 or 50 people in a lifetime. Hitler can destroy the lives of 30 million people. So the human being's capacity for good and evil is colossal. The greatest human being can start a renaissance, revitalize a religion, and uplift a generation. The human being is the most dangerous creature in the world. From society's point of view, and ultimately from the individual's point of view, good parenting is essential for the welfare of all. Now, it's important to appreciate this. The most dangerous human being is one who has a mixture of virtue and vice. So if you're going to do the job, you have to do the whole job. If you rear a child and it is completely full of vice, it won't get up to much. It won't be able to get out of bed in the morning. It'll only mug a few little old ladies and things like that. But if it has a combination of virtue and vice, then it can do amazing things if it uses those virtues to support its vice. So Hitler, at a level could inspire millions. He could motivate, he could plan, and he had great vision. And because he had these virtues, albeit in support of vice, he was capable of great harm. If you have brought children into this world, make sure you finish the job. Some of you are looking very worried already. <laughs> the third thing about the human being is that the good and the bad exists in every human being. Ordinarily, we're not aware of all that is bad in us. So, for example, we may think that none of us are anti-Semitic or racist. However, if we had been born in Germany in the 1920s, some of us might have joined the Nazi party. If we had been in South Africa in the 60s, some of us might have voted for apartheid. The possibility is that there is much badness in us, but it never expresses itself because there's nothing to activate it. 
Our environment determines what is drawn out of us. And because of this, the role of the parent is to provide that which draws out only the good which is in the child. The fourth factor, and this is rather controversial, it's to do with the inability of the child to discriminate. A child at an early age cannot tell right from wrong in the sense that it cannot reason right from wrong. No matter what you have said to the child, if you leave it to the child to choose to drink Coca-Cola or milk and you leave it there for a weekend on its own, you'll come back with enough milk for scones and there'll be no Coca-Cola in your house. The child will simply go by taste alone or what yields pleasure. I'm sure you've seen a child, you know, remove the legs from a spider. Now, the child has no concept that this is either a good act or a bad act. It is simply dismembering the spider. That's all. So it has no concepts of good or bad. And you need reason to be able to determine good from bad. Now, a child can learn the good and it can refrain from the bad, but it cannot reason between what is good and what is bad. Reason only becomes available to the child at age 10 and only fully develops by age 16. Before 10 we may provide the reasons to the child but it cannot do the reasoning. The child may express opinions, preferences, etc. but this is not the same as reasoning. And I'm going to give you a story which illustrates this. I was once waiting for the dentist to do horrible things to me, so in abject fear I was reading Woman's Own, which is not my standard reading. But anyway, I was reading Woman's Own and there was the letter of the week in it. And it was actually an excellent little story that this mother told. She told the story of her five-year-old son who came back from school and he said, Mummy, why does it get dark at night? And these are the sort of times that you wish you'd paid more attention when you were at school. The mother was a remarkably inventive mother and she got an orange and a torch. She shone the torch on the orange and she said to the child, do you see the way half the orange is brighter than the other half? And then she swiveled the orange around and she said, now do you see that the half that was dark has now become bright? And she explained to the child the movement of the earth and the sun, all this sort of stuff. She explained everything to the child. The child was nodding his head in absolute agreement. And at the end, she said to the child, now do you understand? And the child says, yes. But what happens if it's an apple? <laughs> and this is a very, very important point. You see, we have the capacity to reason. So we can take the particular and make it into a universal. We know that if it applies to an orange, it also applies to an apple, and it applies to the earth and the sun. The child cannot take the particular and reason it to a universal. So when you say to a child, do not put your foot up on that couch, the child thinks this is confined to that couch. And when it's at the couch of your grannies or your aunt Nellies, it puts its foot up. It doesn't reason that this is a universal. Now, given that the child cannot reason before 10, it's important not to attempt to reason with it before 10. Sometimes you might see a child who's gone completely berserk in a supermarket and it wants one of those mini Mars bars or maybe eight of them 
And the mother is trying to reason with it why it would be better if it waited till it had its lunch. And the child is just screaming its head off. And if you're observing that scene, you know that it is a complete and utter waste of time to be reasoning with this child. And you're right. Even when the child is quiet, it's also a complete and utter waste of time to be reasoning with it or trying to get it to reason. Now, given that it awakens after 10, then it's very important that our relationship with the child changes after 10 and that how we interact with it is in a way that awakens reason in the child so that by the time it becomes an adult, it can be independent of us. It can face situations without our guidance. It can use its own reason to determine what is good or bad or useful or not to it. While there may be many more points to present which justify the need for parenting, these four are fundamental. So I'm now going to move to a new topic. When we look at a baby for the first time, so when you held that baby, and assuming you hadn't got an epidural so that you weren't in some other world, what did you see with the eyes of your heart? Now, not with your physical eyes, like wondering was it going to be bald all its life. I mean with the eyes of your heart. And when this question is put to parents on the parenting course, in the end, after a certain amount of discussion, what they will universally say is that they saw perfection. That's what you see. This is the reason why you don't think there might be a better looking one down the corridor and if I swap the little name tags, nobody would ever know. It would never cross your mind to exchange your child for another child until it's a teenager. <laughs> but when it's a baby, it's impossible because it's perfect. So therefore nothing can compete with it. So that's fine. So when we look at a baby, that's what we tend to connect with. We connect with its perfection. Now when we look at a four-year-old, what we see is intermittent perfection. On the good days, there's an indication of perfection. On the bad days, not at all. Now when we look at a 14-year-old, then perfection is a distant memory. Right? And we think, where did I go wrong? And we just make it get worse and worse and worse. When the husband comes through the door in the evening and she turns around and sees him, do the words spring to her lips, here comes walking perfection on two hairy legs. Right? <laughs> They're not the words that normally spring to mind. And then the real tragedy is when you consider yourself. Do you consider yourself as perfect? The interesting thing is this. The child considers itself as absolutely perfect. Totally and completely. Because it considers itself perfect, it considers you as perfect. And a humorous way of just uh, considering this is, if you ever wondered, why do your children love you so much? Is it because you're particularly marvellous? The answer is no, right? <laughs> You're not particularly marvellous. The reason why the child loves you unconditionally is because it has no standards. <laughs> <laughs> and the marvellous thing about having no standards is that when you have no standards, everything is perfect. That's why it loves you so much. It doesn't think I prefer a better looking daddy or one who could kick the ball better or anything like that at all. It has literally no standards. And with no standards, it accepts you as perfect.
Now, as I said, it also accepts itself as perfect for a while. If you look at a two-year-old looking at itself in the mirror, the child cannot criticize itself. Have you ever watched a baby looking at itself in a mirror? It is exceptionally pleased by what it sees. <laughs> right? Now, when you and I look at ourselves in the mirror, we think we got a raw deal. We were made with leftover parts. Well, that perfection which we see in the baby is natural and inherent to the human being. And it's not lost as the human being grows up. It gets covered over, but it's always there. What we see in the baby is true, and it's true for all mankind, for all stages of life. And the essence of parenting is to connect with that perfection first and then deal with the matter in hand, whether it be praise or reprimand. One first connects with the perfection which is there, but now covered over, and then deals with the matter in hand. Ordinarily, we connect with the behaviour. We connect with that which is on the surface, and we react to it, either benignly if it's good behaviour, or with anger and irritation if it's bad behaviour. If we connect with the inherent perfection in the baby, we will enjoy unity with it and our parenting will be without error. It's not possible to make an error when you do this. If we simply connect with the artificial or acquired nature, then we will not enjoy unity with the baby, but enjoy some relationship within the range of disharmonious to harmonious. But we will miss out on complete fulfilment. So the essential thing to do is using the eyes of your heart to always connect with the perfection in the baby or child and then deal with the matter in hand. It completely changes how you deal with it and even more importantly, it changes how the child responds to it. So that's that point. Now if we look to the nature of a child, because if we're going to parent a child, we need to know or understand the nature of a child. Now obviously human nature is present throughout the entire life of a human being. But the nature of a child is different from that of an adult. Just to take a Christian quotation, Jesus said, Except ye be as little children, ye shall in no wise enter therein. He obviously saw a difference between the human nature of a child and the human nature of an adult. So let's look at some factors. The first thing about the nature of a child is that it's full of faith and devotion. And this is naturally there and thus does not need to be developed. So the child doesn't develop more faith and more devotion. It comes in pre-packaged with absolute faith and absolute devotion to its parents. It can only be lost and not gained. Now the effect of the child's faith in the parents is that everything that the parents say or do are taken to be true whether they're true or not so mummy says so therefore it's true this can transfer to a teacher later on and they'll say it's true because teacher says so but initially whatever mummy and daddy say is true is true as far as the child is concerned so the horrendous question we have to ask ourselves is, 
is everything we say and do true? Because the child is accepting it as true because of its faith in you. The effect of the child's devotion to the parents is that out of love for the parents, it will seek to be like the parents. If a young boy is devoted to David Beckham, he'll want a sarong for Christmas and he'll have a new hairstyle every six weeks. The child, out of devotion to you, tries to become like you, which is a horrendous prospect for the creation. One of you is enough. If you look at this, would you wish your child to turn out like you? With all your likes and dislikes, your fears and prejudices, your good points and your bad points. It's not going to just select the good ones. It takes them all because of its devotion and faith. So in consideration of their faith and devotion to us, then our responsibility to them is that we only present the best of ourselves to them. So that what they believe in is true and that they imitate only that which is good and useful in us. The second point with regard to the nature of the child is that the child only lives for the present moment. The young child only lives for the present moment. Asking it to wait a minute seems like an eternity to it. So you know when you're on the phone and you say, just wait a minute. Well, within about five seconds, they're tugging at your jacket and saying, is the minute over yet? Because a minute for a child is a colossal amount of time. Now, we're happy to write off years and decades, but a minute for a child is a very important amount of time. Because the child only lives in the present moment initially, the implication of this is that the child is not interested in future glory or reward. Thus, learning and enjoyment must go together. So you never teach a child to the point of boredom or where it's not enjoying what you're teaching it. Telling the child that by learning its tables, it will increase its chances of having an inflation-proof pension will have no motivational effect on the child. It doesn't consider the future. So all these things like if, if you drink Coca-Cola, your teeth will fall out at 18. 18 is another era. Coca-Cola is now. The third thing is to do with energy. The child is full of energy and thus active. And when the child has no outlet to express this energy, then it tends to become badly behaved. It needs to burn up the energy every day. Watching television is fundamentally passive. All you have to do is sit there and it's done to you. And so in the active phase of a child's life, it's not particularly useful. The energy needs to be expressed. If it is not done through activity, then the energy will express itself through dreams and imaginings. The energy has to be expressed. So if I can't do it in activity, the child will start to dream and imagine. And if it practices this a lot, we will then spend the rest of our lives trying to get the child to pay attention. We'd be repeating ourselves ad nauseum while the child is off in a dream or imagination.
So in the very active phase of the child's life, do not teach it passivity, watching television, nor lying on in bed having woken up. When a child wakes up, it needs to be allowed to get out of bed. If you keep it in the bed because of you, then it will simply learn to dream, confined to the bed. The energy is there to be expressed, and the child going to bed tired is a day well spent for the child. The fourth aspect of its nature is that the child is interested in everything. When it gets a present, it is interested in the string, the wrapping, the box and the present itself. And it won't necessarily value the present over the string. So present the child with everything. Since it's interested in everything, present it with everything. Because of its interest, it will ask many, many questions. And it asks many why questions. Not why do I have to do the washing up, which is not a real why question. It's merely disobedience. But it will ask questions like, why does it rain? Now, what we tend to do is we hear it as, how come it rains? And so we explain about the sun beating down on the ocean and the mist rising and then forming clouds and hitting mountains and then the rain falls. That's not what the child asked you. It asked you, why does it rain? Which is a philosophical question. If you don't answer these questions, the child comes to understand that you don't know and it stops asking them. And this is a real tragedy because it asks the real questions of life very early on and our responsibility is to have the answers. And just to give you a sense of the sort of questions that a child can ask, my five-year-old daughter at a barbecue with lots of people around, what Caroline asked was, she said in a very loud voice, Dad, where do shapes come from? Fantastic question, isn't it? Where do shapes come from? The fifth factor is that the child can hold information but not discriminate, whereas the adult can discriminate but not hold. So if you ask a three-year-old to learn Chinese, it doesn't have a difficulty. There's about 300 million of them or 400 million of them in China and they're all managing to learn Chinese. If you ask an adult to learn Chinese, it's very, very difficult because for the adult to hold information is extremely challenging. But the child can hold information. Now because of this holding power, at an early age, it can be given the finest and the best that the world knows in terms of knowledge. Don't wait till it's 15 or 16 before you give it the best. Give it the very best at a very young age. Give it the great principles and the great truths in childhood. In adulthood, it can then make use of them. And the last factor with regard to the nature of the child is that the child has no wisdom. Wisdom arises after experience and real experience comes with full responsibility. So wisdom to drive a car comes not from reading books and not from being accompanied by a driving instructor 
but ultimately from driving on our own with full responsibility. Children nowadays appear more sophisticated and more informed than previous generations. But this sophisticated or informed state should not be taken for wisdom. The next factor is that children are the future. They have their lives to live, their dreams to fulfill, and not ours. They did not come into this world to fulfill our dreams. They didn't come into this world to make us happy, as they have proven subsequently. <laughs> so they're not there for our happiness, but so that we can help them to be happy. The idea is to help them to fulfill their dreams. They are a gift, not a possession. So we should not seek to make them like us. Do you think that a child would be pleased if it turned out like you? Every 13-year-old child becomes deeply religious and it says a prayer every night with total commitment. Please God, do not let me turn out like him or her. Do not let me have a life like theirs. It's their worst fear. And the worst thing you can say to a 13-year-old or any age after, you're just like your mother or you're just like your father. The child thinks, I'm going to end it all. <laughs> Parenting is not about replicating the past, but about fulfilling the future. The next factor is the first or primary relationship in a family, in a standard family, is husband and wife. Without this, the family breaks up. Everything effectively stems from this relationship. So the question is, do we ever put the children first? Now, this does not imply that one should continue to talk to husband or wife while the child lies bleeding from a wound on the floor. But do we recognize the neglect of a spouse for the sake of a child? And a very simple question is, Let's make it when a husband and the children come home. The question is, which one do you greet first? You always greet the spouse first. And if you do that, by the way, the children adore that. They adore that you actually honour your husband or wife first. It gives them remarkable security. Now, they may run slightly faster than the husband or the wife, so you actually have to ask them to hang on a minute while you give your wife a kiss or a greet or whatever. It is only when the husband-wife relationship is fulfilled that parenting can be fulfilled. So be careful not to sacrifice the spouse relationship for the sake of parenting. This is a true story. It doesn't relate to spouses and children. It relates to a cat and a husband. The lady came to me and she told me that she was having considerable difficulties in her marriage and she wondered about it breaking up. She mentioned something about having a cat and I thought this was rather unusual. She's talking about a breakup of a marriage and the cat comes into the story somehow. Anyway, there was something about the way she said it that made me ask her, by the way, who or what do you feed first? She says, I feed the cat. And I said, why do you feed the cat first? And she said, because it doesn't like to wait. 
Anyway, six months later, she had a cat and not a husband. <laughs> Cats don't rank first. And a child doesn't rank first. The ideal marriage, it's for life. Children go off to Australia, New Zealand. And even if there is Skype, they won't enlist in it. Right? <laughs> now, parenting is in existence to fulfill the needs of the child. And the child has needs at physical, mental and emotional levels. And these can be summarized as follows. The need of a child physically is to enjoy health, strength, agility and grace. And the key is measure. It's very easy to get the physical world right. All you have to do is get the measure right. Measure in all things. So the right amount of food, not too much or not too little, the right amount of work, the right amount of play, the right amount of sleep, etc. The need of the child mentally is to be able to attend, to be filled with universal truths or principles, to have information on how the creation works, and also the ability to reason. And reason here can be defined as how to know the truth from the untruth and the ability to apply universal truths to particular situations. Universal principles would be such as all men are equal, life is sacred, honesty is the best policy, return good for evil, etc., etc. The child needs to be taught these things. The need of the child emotionally is to be loved and to have a heart open to the universe, to develop and enjoy pure and universal emotions such as compassion, forgiveness, patience, harmlessness, courage, fortitude, absence of anger, generosity, etc., etc. So there are the three sets of needs, and that's our job. By the time the child comes an adult, all these three needs have been fully satisfied. Then you get a remarkable human being. Now, parenting can be reduced to two things. Love and discipline. And so the whole art of parenting can be summarized in the following sentence. Up to the age of five, treat a child with love and play. From five to sixteen, put them under discipline. And afterwards, treat them like a friend. So after sixteen, you are the child's best friend. If you get that right... There are no difficulties. Just to take the after 16 one. Do you remember that film Father of the Bride with Steve Martin? Well, there's one very humorous scene in it where I think she comes back from Paris and announces that she's engaged. And he superimposes over her adult form. She's about 25 or 26. This tiny little girl with pigtails. Because he can only see her as about age five or six, so to be engaged to a man is incomprehensible to him. So he's in a complete state of shock. At the end of that first meeting, herself and the fiancé are leaving the house. And he says to her, I think it's a bit chilly outside, perhaps you should get a pullover. And she said, no, it, I'm all right. And uh, he said, no, I think it is actually a bit chilly, perhaps you should get a pullover. She said, no, no, I'm all right. 
And her fiancé said, actually, I think it is a bit chilly. She says, I'll be downstairs in a minute. The father loses all authority once the child becomes an adult. And if you try to speak with that authority, the child will end up emigrating to New Zealand. It will get away from parenting after it becomes an adult. You must become a friend. So, we have love and discipline. Love is always for the benefit of the other. We love our children for their sake, for their happiness, and not our own. Now, we may recognize getting children to behave in a way solely to make us happy, rather than it being for the happiness of the child. So sometimes we put a child to bed for our sake, and not for its sake. You know, you're going out to some stupid parenting talk, and <laughs> the child has to go to bed earlier, so you say to it, oh, you're looking very tired tonight, and I think you should go to bed early. The child has the capacity to read your heart, so it says, mummy's lying tonight, so that's the game tonight, so I lie back. So it says, I really love when you stay in, you read me stories till very late, and this sort of thing. Anyway. This is a quotation from the Shankaracharya. He says, The child is a tender object. For five years, save him or her from any pressure on their mind and body and feed them with love and affection. All that needs to be taught, he should get through play and love. He will respond easily to love. Now, the key bit in this is that there is no mention of discipline up to the age of five. So discipline is not a factor in rearing a child up to age five. And I'm sure that won't cause you any problems, conceptually or practically. <laughs> so I'm going to explain it since it does. Right? There is no disciplining a child up to age five. This does not mean that there should be no order in the child's life. There is a great need for order in the child's life in the first five years and thereafter. But this order is brought about through love and play and not through discipline. And if I can tell a story from the Mulhall's lives to illustrate this. We used to take our holidays in France and I used to get to select where we go in France. And in those days, really used to like the sun. So, it had to be the south of France. But I also like to have a car, and I like it to be a right-hand drive car. So that meant we would take the ferry, and we would drive to the south of France. That would mean about 800 kilometres, with three children in the back seat. So what's 800 kilometres with your family? It's an opportunity to get to know them better, and let the love <laughs> deepen, and all these things. Anyway, the first year we set off, Within five kilometers, there's, Dad, he's staring at me. <laughs> right, look out that window and don't look back in until I tell you. He's leaning on me or he's touching me. Okay, so you'd stuff a pillow between them, right? And then he's got more of the seat than me. So you draw imaginary lines on the seat to say, don't cross that line now, okay? Anyway. By the time we got to the south of France, I actually thought of going over to Morocco and dumping them there, uh, having cut off all the name tags, right? So anyway, we get back to Ireland, and I'm determined to have my holidays in the south of France, so we're going. 
but we still have these three creatures who can destroy a holiday. I remember I had tried everything. I had tried all sorts of disciplining to make the journey pleasant, but it hadn't worked. Anyway, I have eye teeth, two sort of sharp teeth you have on the top. In the Republic of Ireland, we used to have a sweet called silver mints. It's a solid mint, okay? Anyway, when I was a child, I used to get a, a silver mint and I'd put it onto one of these eye teeth and I'd spin it with my tongue at an immense speed which would burrow a hole through it. So I would turn it into a polo mint. So I thought, excellent. I bought about a half a ton of silver mints for our next holiday. <laughs> I had them all in the boot of the car. And we just got off the ferry. We're now in Le Havre, 800 kilometres ahead of us. The first pit stop is 200 kilometres down the road. And I said to the children, I said, now when Daddy was a very young boy, he could do this. I'm not sure whether you'll be able to do it, but maybe you can have a try and see whether you're as good as Daddy. So I'd hand out a mint to the three children and one to my wife as well, because it also kept her quiet. Right? <laughs> anyway, all five of us would have a mint. And we'd place the mint on the sharpest tooth we could find. And so if you were observing the Mulhall car going down to the south of France, you would have seen five scrunched up faces making all sorts of mannerisms as they tried to turn solid mints into polo mints. We used to get about 20 miles to a mint in absolute silence. So that's an example where the necessary order for a pleasant family journey was brought about through love and play and not through discipline. The young child always plays. Even if you ask to do the washing up, it's playing washing up. You ask them to clean the car, it's playing cleaning the car. Shopping is playing. Everything is playing. So long as they are free and have energy, they will play. It's only their nature. Therefore, natural parenting in this phase of life is achieved through love and play. The second aspect of parenting is discipline. And it was said to put the child under discipline from 5 to 16. Now this should not be interpreted as the abandonment of love. You don't on the fifth birthday say to the child, it's all over now kid, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm getting my revenge now for the next 11 years. It's not the abandonment of love. Up to 5 it is love and order brought about by love. After 5 the love continues but now order is brought about by the child learning self-discipline. It's important that we understand what discipline really is. So if I said to you that last night I disciplined one of my children, what image comes to your mind? Normally what comes to mind is I had a bit of an argument with them. There was a bit of anger or friction between us and there was a so-called superior will imposing itself on an inferior will. But this is not what discipline is about at all. So let's see if we can understand, maybe in a more fulsome way, what true discipline is. Consider these questions silently. Would you like to be a disciplined person? So let's say you're in a restaurant and you overhear somebody talking about you at another table. And they say, you know, she or he is a very disciplined person. Would you burst into unbridled rage at the insult of that? Or would you think it as a compliment that somebody had referred to you as a disciplined person? Would we like to be disciplined with regard to eating? 
with regard to drinking, with regard to sleeping and working and playing? Would we like to be disciplined as regards timekeeping when we get out of bed, keeping our word, being emotionally stable, finishing anything we start, being able to attend to what is in front of us? Well, if you've answered those questions, the vast, vast, vast majority of mankind says they would love to be disciplined. But when it comes to disciplining children, some of us can lose confidence and shy away. We may fear that disciplining the child could restrict its growth, or limit its happiness, or reduce its love for us. Yet if we look at the earlier questions, we would all love to be disciplined in the areas mentioned. It's important to appreciate that true discipline leads and is essential to growth of being. And ignorant disciplining of a child is a form of tyranny. True disciplining is an expression of love and reason. We could not enjoy health in the body without discipline with regard to eating, working, playing, etc. We could not enjoy mental health without discipline in the mind. We need to be able to not think excessively. We need to be able to attend, etc., etc. We could not enjoy emotional health without discipline in the heart. If we couldn't control our emotions, we would be emotionally unhealthy. So discipline is essential for anyone who wishes to be healthy in body, mind and heart. Now, for true parenting, we are not trying to discipline the child, but are trying to provide discipline to the child, so that it can enjoy a disciplined life, the same life that we ourselves would like to enjoy. We can apply discipline or give discipline. Now, applying discipline often is simply getting the child to obey us, whereas giving discipline is leading the child to obey the truth within himself, to become master of his or her own being, and thus enjoy true and substantial freedom. Again, to take an example of this, when we ask a child to be quiet, do we ask the child to be quiet for our sake or for its sake? For our sake is when we are applying discipline on the child and for its sake is when we are giving discipline to the child. Now at the start, discipline can appear difficult and restricting and this may cause the child to complain and resist but this is not reason to water down the discipline. When discipline is mature, it feels natural, it becomes easy, there's no discomfort and any sense of doing disappears. So if you take somebody like a Tiger Woods in golf, when he hits a shot, it has all those qualities because he is a disciplined golfer. You and I look like somebody with a spade on a course trying to dig a ball around the place. Now there are some additional benefits to discipline. The first thing is energy. With discipline, the child will conserve energy and will thus have extra energy. And with this extra energy and not wasting energy, they would be able to take up leadership. All great leaders have an abundance of energy. And discipline both conserves and creates energy. 
the child would be able to, in adulthood, take up positions of responsibility and be of real use. The second factor with regard to the disciplined person is that they would enjoy pure emotions. So they'd be more self-controlled, steadfast, more confident, never disturbed, have a balanced disposition. They'll be patient and their attention will be acute. They will be more tolerant of situations. They'll be happier, balanced, free from desires, enjoying a sense of freedom and be very peaceful. The third factor is their work. It will be refined, better and inspirational to others. It will be more efficient. They will be readily available for more activity and not get involved in unnecessary activity. And the fourth factor is the disciplined person has self-mastery. So they'll have the facility to enact what they know to be true and will not succumb to either their own erroneous feelings and opinions or to peer pressure. Self-mastery is so important in the teenage years. You don't want them to succumb to peer pressure. You want them to be true to themselves. Now, how is the child to learn self-discipline? Well, there are two phases. One before age 10, where the child simply learns good behaviour through obedience to a reasonable adult. And the second after 10, where reason is developed in them and they ultimately become reasonable adults guided by what their reason tells them. The idea is that at 16, the child becomes an adult. It's all over at 16. Your work is complete. The child should be capable of leaving the home and establishing its own life according to reason and love. In phase one, up to age 10, since children have no discrimination and since they have abundance of energy, they must come under the direction of their parents. And to come under direction, they must obey their parents. So it's much more the need of the child that it obeys than it is the right of the parent to demand obedience. If it is appreciated that discipline is a true and fundamental need of the child, the parent is less likely to abdicate in its duty of providing discipline. Now, discipline needs to take a firm route before 16. Otherwise, the child will lead a poor life. It's very hard to gain discipline after 16. You need a major shock or tremendous effort. It's really all laid down before 16. All that brilliance and power which everybody brings with them into their lives is lost without discipline. So if a minor is left with great wealth and no discipline, they would squander the wealth and once the wealth is gone, recollecting it would not be easy. A child comes into this world with consciousness and that's its capital. It's what allows it to live a full and glorious life. And you can see this consciousness in the eyes of a child. Do you ever notice how bright the eyes of a child are? How unbelievably bright they are. Even if it cries, about 10 seconds after it stopped crying, you can't tell it's been crying. Whereas if you and I cry, we look like a rabbit for about a week. 
if you want to know whether you have the same capital now as when you came into the world, then take a look at your eyes. If they're any duller now than they were when you were a child, then we've lost some of our capital. You're meant to die as a child, at about 80 or 90 or 100. You're meant to have that brightness. And I'm sure there are some people you know who are as bright as buttons in their 80s. And there are some people who are old at 20. To give discipline to the child is to ensure that the riches with which it came into the world are not wasted and are available to it to live a full, free, happy, prosperous and healthy life. So we should give discipline to the child over five so that it may be disciplined, that it may enjoy a disciplined life. And as was said earlier, the key to this is that up to ten, the child must obey. This is not in a minute or after this program type obedience. Or it's not after having repeated oneself three times type obedience. Where your voice needs to go up six octaves before the child cognizes that you've instructed it in some way. It's immediate obedience. So as a parent, you never repeat yourself. Now since you're adults, I'm going to repeat that. You never repeat yourself. All you're teaching it is to ignore what people say to it first. So you never, ever, ever repeat yourself. If the child does not obey, and then that there has to be repetition, then it is to be accompanied with a sanction. There's a price to pay for not obeying. In this way, the child will learn obedience very quickly. And that's all you want to do between the ages of 5 and 10. We simply want to establish good habit in the child. We're going to provide the direction. It's going to enact it. And in this way, the child becomes well behaved, not through reason, but through obedience. After 10, it can become well behaved through the development of reason, but not before then. Let's look at misbehaviour. When we are angry or irritable, we may think that the child is misbehaving deliberately just to get at us. We think we have a fiend on our hands who plans irritable behaviour so that we can be driven insane. However, if we reflect on the nature of a child, it becomes obvious that they misbehave for many reasons. So, they could be seeking attention, they could be bored, it could be a power struggle with the parent or a sibling. They could simply be tired. They could be hungry. They could be possessed by a desire for one of these mini Mars bars. They could have low self-esteem. They could be overexcited. They could be feeling inadequate. They could be full of fear. They could be ill. Or there could be a change in their lives. They've got a new teacher or you've moved house or something like that. So all of these things may bring about bad behaviour in the child. So when a child is misbehaving, what we first need to do is determine what is the cause. If the child is hungry, it's wrong to put it to bed. And if it's tired, there's no point in feeding it. We need to get the cause correct. Having determined the cause, we then need to turn up with the cure. 
And if you take each of the causes of misbehaviour in turn, the reasonable cure becomes obvious. If the child is tired, well, we put it to bed. If it's hungry, we feed it. If it's overexcited, we calm it down. If it's feeling inadequate, we support it or reassure it. We can also help to improve behaviour by pointing out things that the child does well. We can reinforce good behaviour with praise and encouragement, a hug or a privilege. And we praise behaviour, not the child. There's no need to praise the child. The child is perfect. What you praise or not praise is behaviour. By praising its opposite, misbehaviour is helped to be eliminated. So be generous with encouragement as this provides support, trust and self-belief. Misbehaviour can be minimised by reducing boredom through various activities, by not having excessive rules, by explaining what is happening next. If you bring a child to the beach and it's been running around like a yo-yo for about a couple of hours and then you say, now we're going to granny, it may go berserk. So you explain to it, you say, by the way, we're first going to the beach, and after we go to the beach, then we're going to granny. So it knows. You give clear instructions. Tell them what you would like them to do and why. Always maintaining eye contact. So do not talk to them when they're upstairs. You bring them downstairs, and you say to them, now, this is what I want you to do. We should avoid our own emotional negativity. We can explain why certain behaviour is inappropriate and we should be consistent. So we never give in to tantrums as this simply rewards misbehaviour. And we follow through with decisions made. So if the child is asked to go to its room for an hour, we don't go up after 15 minutes to see how loud the sobbing is and then have our hearts melted and let it out after 25 minutes. All you're teaching it is to sob. And then they practice it as an adult when they're married. Right? <laughs> it's the only way to get your way. The next bit is very, very important. And this is really, again, coming back to this point of realising that the child is perfect. Because the child is perfect, it deserves only the best. It's as simple as that. You should never give the child anything other than the best. So what do we provide to a child? Well, there are two things. We provide good material or the best material and we provide good company or the best company. So we're going to look at good company first. We are the most influential company in the child's life and so they deserve the best of us. And this can be brought about in the following ways. The first thing is we look at our family legacy. Because we were all raised ourselves, we've inherited a family legacy from our parents. And this is the values, thoughts, actions and beliefs that we inherited from our parents. And some of these are useful and constructive, and some of them are decidedly unhelpful and destructive or limiting. These parental influences can often be quite subtle and operate unseen and undetected in our relationships with our children. We will see it even in physical mannerisms, such as how we tilt our head or certain words and phrases we use which our parents use. 
sometimes in the middle of parenting we can see our mother or father acting through us you're going like this and you suddenly recognize that finger it's the finger of your mother right, or your father this legacy has an immense power over our lives it would be based either on imitation or resistance by practicing the opposite so if our parents were very strict we will tend to be very strict or very liberal one or the other either way we will have inherited the legacy what is useful for us to do is to do a family legacy audit which is a very depressing thing to do but anyway and determine that which is useful and that which is not useful what is useful we should develop and what is not useful should be abandoned now this is very important this is not an exercise in blaming it's an exercise to liberate a family from unhelpful traits which have been passed from generation to generation the idea is that what is not conducive to happy fulfilled living dies with the previous generation and what is conducive is developed and passed on to the next now in the course there is a whole series of questions which is, is like a family legacy audit I'll give you a sense of them you would ask questions like what were the best and worst qualities of my mother and father my mother and father showed their love for me in the following ways my mother and father corrected or disciplined me in the following manner the characteristics I saw in my mother and father's parental behaviours that I see in my own are ABC and this suggests the behaviours that I could further develop or eliminate and then what are the specific actions necessary to bring this about well children are watching us every minute and they learn and imitate our behaviours our actions, our values, our beliefs and even our expressions so if you drop a cup and you say damn it after a little while you'll see a little four year old dropping something saying damn it it doesn't know what damn it means but anyway it sounds good because mummy and daddy say it we are their first and most important teacher we do not have to actively try to mould them to have a moulding effect simply by our presence the mind and the heart of the child is moulded our actions speak much louder than our words so when you tell a child you're never ever ever to lie and then when it answers the phone you say to them tell them I'm not in right <laughs> you know you'll find that your words are reduced to naught if we want our children to be neat we must be neat There's no point in asking them to have their room neat and the boot of your car is like a pigsty if we want our children to be honest we must be honest if we want our children to be passionate about life we must be passionate about life if we want our children to be free of anger we must be free of anger and if we want our children to be happy we must be happy so we've all got a modelling career whether we like it or not not for clothes unfortunately so we're not looking at our family legacy now we should look at ourselves and this is the second exercise we can carry out to help us to give only the best of ourselves to our children on a range of one to five we could ask questions like do we model a life of passion and purpose say if you asked your children do you think my life is exciting and adventurous 
could they stop themselves laughing when you ask them? <laughs> Do you lead a healthy, active life? Do you effectively resolve conflicts? Do you avoid the unpleasant and procrastinate and postpone what needs to be done? Do you handle disappointments well? Do you enjoy high self-esteem? Do you overcome fear? Do you live within your means? Do you model healthy and happy relationships with your spouse and relatives? And there's a lot more questions, but it's very good to do that. We should try to become aware of our modelling influence and seek to model only the best for the child. So let our behaviour be the very best for the child's sake. And at any point in time, ask the question, is this my best that I'm giving now? The second factor is good material. This is how we provide the best for the child. So, between the ages of 5 to 10, the capacity for acquisition of simple knowledge is great. The simpler, the better. It is at this age that universal truths or principles can be given to the child. The more universal and simpler, the better. So you teach a five-year-old that honesty is the best policy. If you wait to 16, you have no chance. If you happen to believe these things, you teach them that life is sacred. You teach them to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That your word is your bond. Children will naturally accept these universal truths at a very early age. If you happen to be religious, presentation of scripture to the child can be of great benefit. Detailed understanding by the child is not important at this stage, but presentation of the material is. And it's also at this stage that the child can be fed with universal and pure emotions. So harmlessness to all creatures, fearlessness in all endeavours, absence of anger in all circumstances, courtesy, humility, absence of greed, all these wonderful emotions. It's between five and ten that you can really plant these in the child. And what greatly helps children is stories of great men and women who have embodied these qualities. And these will become the heroes or heroines of the children and they will seek to emulate them in their own lives. If you don't give them heroes or heroines, they will get their own. And they'll end up being Michael Jackson and Madonna and a few others. Children are naturally attracted and drawn towards what they see, hear about, or come into contact with. Things can only be held if they are provided. Thus, provision of good material is a most important factor. And once they hold it, it would become a part of their own self and would rarely be lost. It's like having an accent. Let's say I grew up in Dublin, and so I was given a Dublin accent. Now, if I came to Belfast at this age, it wouldn't make any difference to what age I lived. I'm still going to have a Dublin accent on my deathbed. It's ingrained in the being. So ensure that the children get the best physical diet in terms of food, exercise, sport, work, play and sleep. And also that the children get the best mental and emotional diet. So again, this is a very important question. Do we give them the best mental and emotional diet that's available to mankind. So, it's helpful to do an audit on the child's mental and emotional diet. 
review the music it listens to, the literature it reads, the television and videos it watches, the radio it listens to, the computer games it plays, the internet it turns on to, the company it keeps, and the activities it participates in. And remember that only the best is good enough for the child. Do not underestimate the power of environment. Whatever is the content of the diet would become the content of the child. And it's as simple as that. Because I was reared in Dublin, I have a Dublin accent. It's as mechanical as that. So whatever you put in, that's all you'll get out. So you should never be surprised by how a child turns out. If you are surprised at 16 at how it has turned out, it's simply we have not been aware what it's been fed on. Now the last great principle, and this again is fundamental to parenting, is that you always work with what you have. It's a very simple principle, but absolutely profound. In the context of parenting, this means you always work with the nature of the child and never against it. Everybody has a dominant way or style of interacting with others, whether children or adults. And these interactions can be very useful or greatly counterproductive. And it will depend on our style of interaction. As our children most likely have quite different natures, needs, behaviour and temperament, it's necessary for us to have a different style of interaction for each child. Those of you who have more than one child, what you recognise is that the children have completely different natures. So you can't be the same parent to two different children. If you've got four children, you're going to have to have four personalities to deal with each child appropriately. There are three fundamental types of children. The first one is the independent child. This child is self-reliant. They like to make their own decisions, likes to be in control, needs space, sets their own rules, seeks power even by misbehaving, likes to draw others into battle. So they're always arguing. They're combative. They assert their will. They find rules frustrating and tend to ignore them. They're dramatic. They make mountains out of molehills and they scream and cry to get their way. And they are disrespectful. You probably don't have any like that, but anyway, that's a description of some other people's children, okay? Then you have the collaborative child. This child is helpful, flexible, participates rather than leads, enjoys teamwork, is agreeable, shares, well-mannered, willing to go along with others. It's like hearing a description of yourself, isn't it? <laughs> the third one is the passive child. Here the child needs to be instructed before taking action. Is not a self-starter. Follows orders and rules well. Likes praise and approval. Likes to please. And takes on the qualities of those in charge of it. So there are the three types of children. Now then there are three styles of parenting. And all three styles have their validity at different times. Albeit we will participate in all three styles on occasions, one style will tend to fundamentally dominate in our nature.
And the problem often is that a particular style rules rather than the need of the particular circumstances, nature and behaviour of the child. The aim is that the need of the moment and the parenting style should be compatible at that time. The three styles are authoritarian, cooperative and liberal. And again, very, very briefly, the authoritarian style of parenting is where we tell the child what to do and what not to do. We're strict, domineering, we don't like to be questioned, we expect and demand obedience, and we have clear expectations on the behaviour of children. We set values and beliefs and goals for the family, and respect is very important to us. We are decisive and efficient. If we're a cooperative style of parent, well then we're a team player type. So we establish a team spirit and decisions are a collective effort. Where would we like to go on our holidays this year? We're somewhat democratic. We teach children to set their own goals and standards. We're attentive, listen well, responsive and sensitive. We're good negotiators. The children's opinions are valued and rules are simple and there's room for flexibility. We believe more in drawing out rather than putting into the child. And then the liberal style of parenting is lenient or permissive, promotes self-reliance, is gentle, intervenes only when things get out of hand, compassionate, empathises, encourages and motivates values creativity and individual expression, is supportive, accepting, undisciplined and avoids leadership. To summarise, authoritarian parenting has authority and responsibility with the parent alone. Collaborative parenting has them shared between the parents and the child and liberal parenting leaves them with the child. When operating at its best, an authoritarian parent produces an obedient, well-mannered, respectful, principled, hard-working, efficient, task-orientated child who is clear as to behaviour, values and goals. A cooperative parent at its best produces a cooperative, team player, confident child who makes others happy and enjoys depth of relationship. A liberal parent at its best produces a self-reliant, free-thinking, creative, self-motivated child. Now when they're operating at their worst, it's a different picture. At its worst, an authoritarian parent produces a frightened, stunted, resentful, disobedient, workaholic, hard-hearted, rigid, domineering child. A cooperative parent at its worst produces a human chameleon, dependent on others, untrue to themselves, sacrificing their individuality, a people-pleaser, martyr type of child. A liberal parent at its worst produces an undisciplined, unreliable, disrespectful, unmotivated slob who starts many things and finishes none, has no backbone, lacking in fortitude, endurance and values. They are selfish and tend to drift. 
all parenting styles are appropriate, subject to circumstance. The key to parenting style is the need of the child. So you must not become a type of parent. You must get flexibility so you can respond to the need of the child. Because this may vary from moment to moment and day to day. All things being equal, excellent parenting moves from the best of authoritarian to the best of collaborative to the best of liberal as the child grows to adulthood. Depending on the nature of the child and its behaviour at a particular point of time, one style of parenting would be more effective than others. So authoritarian parenting will not work with an independent child. It will simply be arguments all the time. When the child is being independent, the liberal style of parenting works best because it provides the space. When the child is being passive, the authoritarian style of parenting works best because it gives the direction that is lacking in the child. And when the child is being cooperative, collaborative parenting works best as it helps the child's self-esteem to develop and strength of relationship is developed which the child wants. To conclude, the last thing that the Shankaracharya told us was that you must have a vision for your child. If you want to build a house, you just don't dig a few trenches and lay the foundations and design it as you go along. What you do is you have a vision in your mind of the completed house and you build according to that vision. Well, we must have a vision for our child. It will be different for each child. And the vision should incorporate the concept of a good, civilised and cultured being into which we wish our child to evolve. So again, if you ask yourself the question, would others refer to you as a good, civilised and cultured person? You know, if people were walking down the street and they saw you, with a whisper to the other person, you know, she is a very good person. Or she's very cultured or very civilised. How many people would we say are good, civilised and cultured? For example, is our society cultured? Let's say we put all the examples of our society into one of these little capsules and in 500 years' time or 1,000 years' time they dig it up and they read our literature and they watch our television programmes and they listen to our music and they study our art and architecture, will they come to the conclusion what a cultured society it was? That is general. Every parent should have a vision for their child to emerge as a good, civilised and cultured being. But then there's the individual nature of the child. And the Shankaracharya said this, and this is very, very important. There is something in all of us which is special or outstanding. Each should try to please God or serve the universe with that attribute in which he chiefly excels. So each of our children has an attribute. It's a talent, a quality, something in which they chiefly excel. It is that which they have to offer the world or God or whatever. And it is the responsibility of the parent to discover that chief attribute. 
Most of us may have got through life not knowing what our one is. And this is a real tragedy. Because if you want to live true to yourself, you must discover that attribute. By looking at your children, they will reveal it to you in everything they do or say or feel. And when you find that attribute, you support it and develop it and praise it and grow it. Because out of that you will get a great human being. You don't have to have two great attributes to be a great human being. Nelson Mandela was able to come out of prison after 27 years with no hatred for those who had put him into prison. And that makes him a world leader. One quality. Each one of our children can be great, but we need to find that quality in which they excel. So we should formulate in writing a vision for each of our children based on our concept of a good, civilized and cultured being and on the chief attribute in which it naturally excels. Consider carefully what it means to be good, what it means to be civilized and what it means to be cultured and what their chief attribute is. With this vision and the full enactment of the principle, up to the age of five, treat a child with love and play. From five to sixteen, put them under discipline and afterwards treat them like a friend. Excellent parenting is guaranteed. Thank you very much indeed. So, what questions would you like to ask? So this lady over here, left. If you have a child under the age of five, and it's not about enforcing discipline, but if they are throwing a real tantrum, is it best to try and distract them? Or if they're doing something that's definitely wrong? I can give a specific example. <laughs> I'm sure we can imagine them, right? <laughs> The idea is, and I'm going to make it more philosophical, the child comes into this world believing it is the centre of the universe. That is the most important thing in the whole universe. It believes that the entire universe exists for it alone. So mummy exists for it and daddy exists for it. Mummy and daddy don't exist for each other. They only exist for the child. So that's why if mummy and daddy are having a conversation and the child wants to say something, it's completely irrelevant that they're having a conversation because I'm the most important thing in the world and why would anybody want to be talking to anybody else other than me as the child? So the child also believes that everything belongs to it. So if it sees a bicycle down the road, it just brings it back with it because everything belongs to me. Now... There is a deep philosophical significance to that, which I'm not going to go into. For the first five years of the life, the child should never experience not getting what it wants. Never. Now, this sounds very dangerous. It'll be all right at the end of the answer, but it should always get what it wants. Because it's fed with love and its desires are always fulfilled, 
that first five years develops remarkable self-confidence. The world loves me and the creation gives me everything I want. So it really adores life. And it adores itself. Okay? However, a child doesn't have wisdom, so what it desires is not always best for it. So what we have to do is substitute something that is actually good for the child as compared to what it wants, but with the child believing that it's got something better. very simple example that I've used in the past is our eldest daughter had a fixation with pressing the little red button on the fridge, which is the defrost button. And the way they design fridges is you cannot tell whether this button is pressed or not. So she would press it, close the door, we would be unaware, we would come down the next morning and find the ice cream melted into the broccoli and a pool of water around the fridge. And she was always doing it. Anyway, one day, Anne, my wife is not at home and I'm minding Caroline by reading the financial pages of the Irish Times in the kitchen. I look up from the newspaper and I see her edging towards the fridge. So I said, don't go near that fridge. And she burst into a little gallop to get to it even quicker. (laughs) Uh, To get to it even quicker. And my car keys were on the kitchen table and there's a little car alarm box, which if you press a button, a little red light comes on. And I said to her, would you not prefer to play with daddy's alarm box? And she immediately swiveled around, came and played with the alarm box and forgot the fridge. Now, that's the point about a child. A child, when it picks up one thing, completely forgets the other thing. We can hold about three or four things in mind, but a child can't. It gives itself wholly and unreservedly to one thing. So the idea is that you give it something which is better for it, which it prefers to its original desire, which was not useful to it. Say a child has a knife, for example. A sharp knife. It's not useful for a child to be holding a knife. You don't grab the knife from the child. Right? You could either end up impaled, or the child could end up impaled. What you do is you give it something else, which is better than a knife as far as the child is concerned, and it is good, and the child starts to play with that and it puts down the knife. And when it puts down the knife, you remove the knife. So the child always gets what it wants, but you're determining what it wants by presenting something better to the child. You can do it with reward, by the way. You can do it with reward or distraction. You can do it with seduction. You you say to the child, now, I want you to eat your cabbage. And the child says, I don't want to eat cabbage. It's got bits in it. And you say, now you must eat your cabbage. I just want you to eat three mouthfuls. Now the child can't count, which is excellent. So you say, now one, and then two, and then now two, right? And there's about 14 twos, and then there's eventually a three, and all the cabbage is eaten. Mothers do this with young girls, and young girls do it with their husbands much later on in life. <laughs> so you can do it with distraction that sort of thing you can do it with reward you can say to a child if you behave well there will be extra reward and that's fine that motivates and you don't want to turn them into a solely reward uh, motivated but it's fine at times 
And the other thing you can do is you can turn it into games. After we had eaten the ton and a half of silvermints and there was still another couple of hundred kilometers to do, we used to do games like, let's see how long we can stay quiet. Let's see who can remain the quietest the longest. And I would you know, tease them that I'm sure I'm going to win. You see? And then you'd let them win. That sort of thing. So you can play sort of games. Children will respond to a challenge. And you can also appeal to the sort of the bigness in them. So you can say, now you're a big boy now, or you're a big girl, and I expect more of you. That sort of thing. And you can say, because you're bigger, you're able to do more now. And you, you're able to look after your little sister or little brother or something like that. And they like being referred to as big. They will become responsible by being called upon as bigger or older. So all of those things will work. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Anybody else? I'm sure most parents are sitting here and there's a part of them that think, well, the past, you know, has not been perfect parenting. Yeah, absolutely. And in the same vein, you're not with your tw child 24 hours a day. Yes. So where do those imperfections, as it were, fit into the child's development? If I just take the second bit, first of all, that you're not with your child 24 hours a day. But then you need to be very careful who your child is with, that they represent the best of humanity. Ideally, they're better off with those who absolutely love them rather than those who are paid to care for them. So up to age five, they're better off being in an environment where they are truly loved, i.e. a family environment. Now, whether that be extended family like grannies and aunts and sisters and all that sort of stuff, that's the ideal. When they go to school, well, you need to really look at the school you're sending them to and you really need to look to the teachers that are teaching them. Not whether the teacher has a PhD in some subject, but the human qualities of that teacher. Because if the teacher is an irritable sort of maniac, well then, all they'll do is pass that on to the child. The child will say, this is the way to behave. Those in charge of me are behaving this way, so this must be the way I'm meant to behave. So one needs to be very careful about that. Now, you don't have absolute control over these things, but to the best of your ability, you optimise the situation. The reality is that the parents have the most influence. Let's say you've done all the work and the teachers are just average. They won't be able to countermand your influence. It's a bit like this. I'm just going to do this mathematically. If you take the 0 to 5 years and we were to think of the influences that fall upon a child that determine how it's going to be when it's an adult. Let's say we've got 10 million here. All right? And we take 5 to 10. We're down to 100,000. And we take 10 to 16. We're down to 10,000. And from 16 till death... We're down to a thousand. Really how the human being unfolds is very much determined in the early part of life. Now, let's say having listened to the talk, a little flicker has entered your mind that I haven't done everything absolutely perfectly. <laughs> Which I think was your other aspect of your question. 
Well, it just means you have to work harder. Now, this is the marvellous thing about the human being. Just as a human being can deform, it can reform. Is that okay? Let's say you were to reflect back on your parenting and you felt that one or two aspects weren't at the absolute glorious best. Well, it may mean you just have to do a little bit extra work as the child is in the 5 to 10 phase or 10 to 16. Now, I'm not going to go into this too much because this is not the age we were looking at, but once the child is beyond 16, then you will not be able to help it based on pleading and reward or any of these things. It doesn't work after 16. So you saying, would you just not make your mother happy and go to university or something like that? It doesn't work. Or, or, any, or you owe it to me, I gave you the best years of my life. You try to make them feel guilty into being good. Not a chance. They say, you can rot in hell, I don't care. <laughs> right? I, I'm doing whatever I want to do. And they're right, by the way. They don't have a debt to you, so there is no debt. So they're not going to accept it. But after 16, what you do is you appeal to reason. And a human being will reform if they can see the reason behind it. If they can't, you can't reform them, nor can they reform themselves. You must use reason. But on the basis that your children are between 0 and 16, then just if they're happy in some of my areas and you feel that you know, it hasn't been up to absolute scratch, well then you just might work at it a bit harder. Another thing which I didn't cover is that if your child has a particular trait in its being which is not useful, because the children don't come in as a blank, they definitely come in with natures, and not all the nature is excellent. So a child might come in very fearful. You know, from a very early age, is evidently a very fearful child. Or it might have very strong anger in its being. Well, you have to work with that. You have to decide, how am I going to help this child not be an angry adult? When it's in the 0 to 5 phase, or the 5 to 10 phase, you basically do it by example, and then you start to help it to control itself. But after 10, you begin to appeal to reason. You appeal to reason, and you can do that. And I've told this story before, but my eldest daughter was born with red hair and a temperament to go with it. So a very fiery creature. Very, very fiery. So very independent, self-willed. You know, that independent child magnified by 10,000. And she's now 13 years of age. And her father, myself, is not exactly the rollover type father. So I'm not exactly the liberal, permissive one. Right? <laughs> so we have this fiery entity and we have me. And all I could see was, she stayed with us till she was 23, was 10 years of abject misery for all of us. So she's got this very strong anger. And she's snapping and snarling at people for nothing. So I noticed she's 13 and she's begun to notice the other gender that there is another gender and that they have certain attractive possibilities to them. I sat her down and I said to her, would you like to marry one day? And you know, most little 13-year-olds, you know, or girls anyway, will be positively inclined towards the concept. And so she said that she did want to marry one day. And I said to her, well, 
the sort of man who will accept you with that temper you will not want so I said this is a very serious conversation the sort of guy who will put up with that you will not want because he'll be a wimp (laughs) so I said to her would you like to be free of your anger and she said yes and I said would you like any help and she said yes I said, all right, well, I'm going to help you. So what I'm going to do is this, that we're going to have an arrangement. And if you follow your bit, and then you lose your temper, it's my fault. So I'm going to accept responsibility for you losing your temper. My job is, when I'm with you, is to be aware of your emotional state. And because I'm older, etc., 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 I should be able to tell when you're about to lose your temper. So we're going to have a signal between us. And that signal will be me telling you that you're about a nanosecond away from a volcanic eruption. Your part of the bargain is that when I point it out to you, you will drop the anger on the instant. My job is to get it as early as possible to give you the best opportunity, but your job is then to drop it on the instant. The signal is that every time I do this, if I do that, it means that you're just a nanosecond away from anger. Because I wasn't going to do it in public, you know, that would have been appalling to her. Now, for a few years, I had an earlobe. I looked like one of these African women, with well, you know, big, long earlobe type of thing. Anyway, it's shrunk back to its normal size again. Carla and myself, we worked on this. Now, she's 30 years of age. She has three children. I think she's a remarkable woman. Remarkable, remarkable woman. Now, she has fantastic fire in her nature. But as I explained to her when she was 13, I said, there are two possibilities with fire. Because everybody has an element in them. Is that all right? Some people are very earthy. Some people are a bit airy, airy fairy type of thing. You know? Some people are spaced out. Right? So she's fiery. And I said, in philosophy, it says that fire can warm and delight, or it can burn and destroy. It's a choice. You've got this fire and it's fantastic. But whether you warm and delight or burn and destroy is your choice. And I would say at age 30 now that she's remarkable energy and remarkable enthusiasm, remarkable fire in her being. But it's absolutely constructive rather than destructive. So you shouldn't allow a child to get to 16 with a serious impediment to its happiness. We come into this world with a whole package and some of it is not useful to a big and glorious life. And as a parent, we need to work with the child's nature so that it delimits itself of these traits. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You needn't think that you have irrevocably scarred your child (laughs) and it can't recover. It's not like that. The human being can undo just like if you take the family legacy bit which we've all inherited we can leave it behind certainly up to age 16 there's tremendous possibility of reformation or evolution tremendous possibilities after 16 it gets quite fixed say if your parents are still alive and you were to consider them have they changed much as people in the last 10 or 15 years. Normally people say, no, they haven't. 
They might change their activities, you know, they might be doing bridge now or meals on wheels or something, but the, as a person, they probably haven't changed very much. And really, after 16, without work via religion or philosophy or some great shock to our lives, we tend to live out our lives as we were at 16. So it's an era of great opportunity, not to 16. And let's say your children were 13 or 14 or something like that, and you're only two years left. There's just so much opportunity in two years. So you needn't be concerned about that. So, that's it. Yes, anybody else? This gentleman here, in the second row. What way does it work if uh, two parents is broke up? And what's the best thing for the child? Well, ordinarily, the mother is the more important parent. I'm giving you a very general answer, and that's useless to a specific situation. But as a general answer, the mother is more important because she tends to spend much more time in the 0 to 5 era. So if I was a divorce judge, then all things being equal, no matter how nice the man was, ordinarily you would give the child to the mother for that era, for, for, so that that era is fully fulfilled. Now, however, so let's say we say two people split up and so they're not residing together, but the father still wants to be father and the mother obviously is mothering, let's say. What you find is that the father comes more and more into play as the child unfolds. He doesn't have an awful lot to do, not to five. He gets to hold the child every so often and play with it and things like that, but he doesn't have a ginormous In fact, the lady's much better at this, at the love and play She's much, much better. I'm going to give you a, a totally stereotypical ignorant male, which probably won't recognise, but anyway, I'll give you. If you ask a, a man to get a, a three-year-old child to eat his cabbage, the man will say, eat your cabbage. <laughs> right? right? And as far as he's concerned, if the child doesn't eat the cabbage, the child is not respecting him and not acknowledging his authority as the man of the house. So then it becomes a battle. You will eat it. You will stay there until you eat it. Now we have a crying child and most likely a crying mother. <laughs> thinking, why did I ask him to, <laughs> to help with the feeding? And if he is removed from the scene and he watches from a distance and the mother says, now do you see the little birdie on the tree? He's eaten all his worms and that's why he's outside playing. And if you eat your cabbage, you can go outside and play. And the husband is thinking, what has birds and worms got to do with a little child eating his cabbage? This is bloody ridiculous. He simply needs to obey. So men are not as good. Now, by the way, men can do it. But ordinarily speaking, it comes much more naturally to the lady, the love and the play. However, there are inbuilt deficiencies and qualities in the males and the females. So the challenge for the lady is to allow the child to grow up. The father, once the baby emerges, he's already thinking of soccer nets and all sorts of things. <laughs> and if you send a man down to buy a bicycle for a five-year-old, what age bicycle will he come back with? He'll come back with an eight-year-old bicycle. and say, look, she can stretch his legs. If you send a mother down to buy a bicycle for a five-year-old, she will come back with one for a five-year-old, but she'll come back with a helmet and elbow pads and all sorts of protective things and stabilizers. And when she goes away for a weekend, 
the child will persuade the husband to remove the stabilizers, <laughs> which he'll only do when his wife's not there. The father wants the companion, somebody who'll watch football with him and he can talk politics with. The mother tends to keep the child, she doesn't get it right, can keep the child smaller. This becomes very painful for the child in this age, the 10 to 60 and thereafter. Very painful. So the child naturally moves away from the mother and more towards the father because all things being equal, he will give the child more space. Is that okay? The man will tend to be more objective in his advice. Now these are all very broad generalizations. If the son... The 16-year-old says, I'm thinking of going to Australia. The father will think, God, yes, surfing, fantastic. Off you go. You'll have a fantastic time. The mother thinks differently. She's thinking, I won't see him for a year. Because of the desire for space, the child moves more towards the father, and the father must step into the role. Nowadays, the tragedy of parenting, I believe, is the ladies are doing the job so well the men are standing back far too much. And seeing the job done well, they're not participating. They're not participating enough in the 0 to 5 and certainly are not coming into it in the 10 to 16 phase. And I'll say it like this, and again it's an exaggeration, but it has an element of truth to it. A 13-year-old girl does not obey her mother. That's the end. The era is over. <laughs> Any time she agrees with her mother is just a coincidence. Right? It is not agreement. And what she will do is she will deceive her mother. So she'll say things like, I'm just going into town. <laughs> now, what is good about men? Men are sort of like barristers. They say, Where are you going? Oh, we're just going different places. What different places are you going to? Who's going to be there? So let's say it's a little girl. She says, oh, well, Mary and Louise will be there. Will anybody else be there? Well, Peter and Fred and Sid will also be there, actually. So the man will tend to really grill. Is that okay? And it's very useful in that phase that when the child is now beginning to seek freedom and break loose, they're still under the protection of their parents. And the child will find it easier to obey the father after 10 than the mother. The child won't respond to pleadings or persuasion or reward. But it will respond to reason and authority after 10. I'll just give you an example my son now. People don't like this story, but if they understood my son and me and the situation, I think they would be happy enough with it. But anyway... My son is 13. We're coming home from philosophy. He's in a philosophy class. I'm in another philosophy class. And he's been told that reason begins to emerge at age 10 and is fully developed at 16. So he's been told by me and in philosophy he's been told these things. Anyway, it's a wintry night. It's about half 10. I'm tired. I'm not looking forward to an in-depth conversation. I just want to get home and go to bed. And he says to me, I don't want to obey you anymore. I thought, oh my God. <laughs> I said, all right. Okay, right. Well, you are. You're going to obey me. He says, no, I'm not. He's a, you know, good, self-reliant little fella. And he says, no, I'm not. 
And I said, well, you are. And I said, what you need to understand is that you haven't got full access to reason. I said, it starts at age 10 and at 16 it will be fully developed. Now, at 16, I said, if you want to leave home and emigrate to Australia or do whatever you want, that's fine by me. But in the meantime, you obey me. And he said, well, I'm 13. Can I half obey you? <laughs> so I gave him... I gave 9 out of 10 for cunning, right? But I said, that's flawed in principle. He said, you're like a provisional driver. I said, when you get your full license, you can go on your own. But right now, you're a provisional, and I'm the main driver. He said to me, well, he said, I've heard what you've said, but I, I don't think I have to obey you. I said, right. Okay. I said, you are totally and completely dependent on me. He said, well, I don't think I am. I said, you see those clothes you're wearing? That's my money in the form of clothes. You see the food in your belly? That's my food which I shared with you. I said, everything is mine. And he said, well, I don't think I need you. you know, and it was excellent. He was really, you know, determined. <laughs> and it's now about quarter to eleven and we've got into the country. We live out in the country and it's dark and it's wintry and I think it might even be raining. So I pulled into the side of the road and I said, okay, get out. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've told me you're an independent young man. I said, you can prove your independence. Give me a ring in a week's time and let me know how you're getting on. <laughs> right? He's 28 years of age and he's married now, but he's turned out five. But anyway, even in those days, really good, strong, well young man. Anyway, so he puts his hand on the door because he's thinking about it. <laughs> so he goes to open the door. And then he says, all right, you win. Now, that's the sort of conversation that needs to be had with a 13-year-old who's standing up. It's not brutal. You need to put questions. You need to develop reason in the child. The child needs to see this is not practical for me to try and be independent of my parents at age 13. But he came to the decision. So let's say as a father, that's what you need to do. You'll play your part earlier on, but you need to really be willing to step into it from age 10 onwards. And you'll find that the children will tend to put more of the fundamental questions to you. When it comes to careers and things like that, the mother's desire to protect is not what the child wants to hear. So, that, as I said, the father is more happy with adventure and danger and excitement and travelling the world. And that's what the child wants and needs at that stage. Does that help? Now, what is important, let's say there is a mother and there's a child and there isn't a father around, then the male influence must be provided. The reverse also applies. Let's say we have a man and a child. We must get the female influence to the child. If the child only gets the male influence, it will be rough and ready and coarser and more aggressive and all of these sort of things. If it only gets the female influence, then it tends to be more brittle emotionally, more needy, more demanding, all of this sort of thing. So what it needs is the best of the lady and the best of the man in its life. 
let's say there isn't a husband around or isn't a father around, well then you want the grandfather. If you can't have the grandfather, we need the uncle. If you can't have the uncle, we need a brother, an elder brother. If we can't have an elder brother, then we need soccer coaches or Boy Scout leaders or something like that. But the child needs to get the female influence and the male influence in those first 16 years. And then you get a very developed being. Reason and love are both beautifully developed in the child. So, if you find yourself in that situation, the first thing is you need not be concerned that you may not spend the same number of hours. A lady's input into the rearing of a child, in terms of hours, is a colossal multiple of a man's input in terms of hours. But when the man is with the child, they need to be good hours. It needs to be good conversation about important things. Do you have a son or a daughter, or sons and daughters, or what? A son, right. Well, when he's 12 and 13, you need to go away for a weekend with him hiking. And you need to say to him things like, what sort of a man are you going to be? Not, are you going to be a doctor or a road sweeper? That's not that relevant. But what sort of a man are you going to be? What values do you have? What do you want to do with your life? Whom do you want to help? Who are you going to live for? You need to put big, big questions to him. And then that's excellent. But you may not have very many weekends away with them, but those weekends will be very powerful in their influence as to how they unfold. So that's the way it works. Yes, anybody else? Can I just ask you about sibling rivalry? Um, I'm from a very young age knowing that the act has been done but denies it. You bring it to their attention that one, they're not telling the truth and just accept sibling rivalry that it's going to happen. Is this between two boys or two girls? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> two boys, exactly. Well, first of all, you've got to understand that the male is competitive. I'm 58 years of age and my son is 28. If he says, I race you to the corner, <laughs> right, I drag this tired old body along as fast as I can to try and beat him. The male is a very competitive animal. So when you put two little boys together, they're going to compete. It's going to be rough and ready. Say if there's a husband and he plays with a child, male or female, up in the bedroom. If a man gets a child, let's say a two-year-old child, in a bedroom, what does he do with the child? Throws him up and down on the bed. <laughs> See, he gets up, goes to the ceiling as he can, see how high he can bounce. Okay. When a lady comes in, she's horrified because she can see broken necks everywhere. The male sense of fun is very rough. Your men get down on the ground, they wrestle, and they put their children in arm locks, and they bite each other, and all sorts of things. First of all, that's fine. That sort of rough sense of fun is part of the male psyche, and it's absolutely fine. So don't be concerned with that sort of competitiveness and that roughness. Up to a point. Up to a point. So you may be jumping in too early. That's one possibility. You've just got to accept that that's the way they are. That they'll always be punching each other and kicking each other and as they go by each other. That's the way the boys are. In John's go to school, it's very interesting watching boys going by each other. They're always trying to trip each other up going down the stairs and all sorts of things. That's just the way they are. Now, however, a boy, he's become a gentleman. He needs to learn to refine and control these energies and all these sort of things. One boy is older than the other, is he? Yeah. They're not twins. All right. What's the age gap? Uh, a year and a half. 
All right, okay. Well, even at a year and a half, you can't take the older one aside. And you can say, you're the older, and I expect more of you, and you have the greater responsibility. And you appeal, to, as I said, to this emerging man inside of him, even if he's only five or six. He still thinks he's a man in a little body. He doesn't think he's a boy. Every little boy thinks he's a man with a little body. Right? <laughs> okay. So, you can do that. And then you can simply punish them. Yeah? I mean, are they beyond five? No, there are three All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, it's three and 18 months. Okay. Well, that's a different matter altogether. Now, with a three-year-old and an 18-month, probably find is what's happening. We sort of set the children down. We say to the three-year-old, now there's your blocks to play with, and to the 18-month, there's, you know, whatever it is. And we try to get some time for ourselves. Is that okay? We back off, having set it all up for a quiet afternoon, right? <laughs> and two minutes later, they're at each other. Well, that's the flaw. That's the flaw. The point about it is that children cannot play on their own for any length of time. They have no sense of measure as to how much they can tease the other one, etc., etc., etc. So that means you have to participate in their play much more. Now, what we tend to do, or what ladies tend to do, and men to some degree, is they try and maintain the household as if there was no child in the household. So they try and keep it as clean as it would be without any children, and as ordered, etc., etc. That's simply not possible. So when there are young children, you have to drop the standards. You have to accept the occasional crayon drawing on the, uh, <laughs> the sitting room wallpaper. All these sort of things. The house is going to be less tidy than it would be otherwise. And abandoning those standards, you have more time on your hand, and with that more time, you play with them more. I said... It's very interesting to watch parents do it. They're basically trying to push the child away with toys and activities so they can have a bit of time for themselves. And that is simply not on as a parent. It's the end of your life as you know it. <laughs> and your time is for them. So what you'll find is that you need to engage and then you won't become uh, sort of managing by exception. You won't be coming in to a room where there's screaming and hair flying all over the place. You'll be in the room and you'll see what's happening and you'll be able to distract them and separate them, etc., etc., etc. That's what's required. You need to participate more when they're at this age. Now, as they're older, these things will develop. But at this age, with a three-year-old and an 18-month-old, there's really no time off. <laughs> no time for me now and just to say this for the mother it is important that a mother does have time off it is not on to ask an adult woman to spend 24 hours a day 7 days a week 52 weeks a year with children this will not satisfy the physical mental and emotional world of the woman so you have to find ways. Now, in the past you might have had six sisters and four brothers and they all would have lived within 300 yards of each other and the sense of community would have been much stronger. The children playing on the streets wouldn't have bothered you at all and all of that. Now we tend to be much more nuclear. Some of our siblings have emigrated. There are less of them. There isn't the same sense of community spirit. So you have to create it. 
People say, well, how do you do it? Well, what you do is you invite people to your house. You invite other mothers and the children. You do the inviting. You bring them to your house. And then you offer to look after other children. You start the ball rolling. Let's make it we have five mothers and ten children. And what happens is three of the mothers at any one time will look after the children. So the other two can go off and do whatever they need to do. The other two mothers. And they get their spare time or their free time. And that's very, very important. Otherwise the lady just gets completely drained. And completely drained she becomes irritable. And becomes irritable the children then start thinking about New Zealand and Australia. As good places to live. You must care for yourself by getting yourself free time and then when you are with the children you must give yourself unreservedly and not try to have them occupied away from you. You really have to participate fully. So that's what I would say. Does that help at all? Um, the element of truth with a three-year-old, like, especially when they are fighting at the minute, if you say who carried out the act or yeah. he knows that he says I didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, is that just acceptable at that age? Well, like, children don't lie. The adult thinks, now hang on a second, right, what's the right answer here? It's a very conscious thing. Children don't accept responsibility for anything. Do you ever see a child walk past a vase and knock it down? And it just looks at it. <laughs> and then it walks on again. <laughs> so children have no sense of responsibility. That's why they have no sense of guilt. If you say, are you not really sorry what you did? Look at your little brother has only got, has got one big red eye there for what you sticking your finger at. Are you not really sorry? And he thinks, what's sorry? Then he learns, actually, when you're sorry, you're supposed to put on this face that pleases her. <laughs> and he learns off phrases. Okay, I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry, mummy. Oh, please love me. And then you go out the door and he says... <laughs> Children don't understand these things. They don't believe they do good. They don't believe they do any wrong. Yeah, so you've just got a few interesting years ahead of you, that's all. <laughs> so, that's it. Thank you very much indeed.